So this year, uh, in 2023, we made some structural adjustments to the index, um, in part due to the discontinuation of certain indicators that we had previously relied on, um, as well as the emergence of new and better data since the inaugural index in 2017. So maternal mortality and political violence targeting women um, represent new indicators added, um, while women's access to justice and conflict proximity uh, replace previously used indicators. So following my presentation, uh, my colleague Siri will, will dive more into findings specifically from our conflict proximity indicator. So all of our uh, data from the 13 indicators come from highly credible, uh, well-recognized data sources, uh, such as the World Bank, the UN ecosystem, the Gallup World Poll, and more. So these indicators have all been chosen because of the distinct and valuable aspects of women's status that they capture, and also because data with broad country coverage are available. The WPS index and its structure are unique in that it bridges insights from gender and development with those from peace and security, and is the only to consider issues of women's inclusion, justice, and security together. So looking at results from uh, 2023, um, Denmark leads the rankings in this edition, scoring more than three times higher than Afghanistan at the bottom. All of the top dozen countries uh, are from the developed country group, and notably, all five Nordic countries rank among the top seven. At the other end of the spectrum, um, seven of the bottom dozen countries are from Sub-Saharan Africa, and most of these countries ranked among the bottom 12 have remained among the bottom 12 uh, for the past uh, four editions. Um, countries ranking poorly in terms of women's status are also characterized by high levels of conflict and instability. Indeed, all 20 bottom countries on the WPS index have experienced armed conflict in the past two years. And in 15 of these countries, at least half of women actively live within uh, a 50 kilometer radius of armed conflict today. <clears throat> the index also reveals a wide range of performance within regions and country groups as shown by the graph here. So developed countries um, and uh, Central Europe and Central Asia have the highest regional average score, while Sub-Saharan Africa and fragile states have the lowest score on average. The Middle East and North Africa displays the widest range of performance, with the UAE ranking 22nd globally uh, and Yemen dropping all the way down to 176. <clears throat> The index also reveals a lot of variation at the dimension level. So a country's overall WPS index score is determined by averaging its scores on inclusion, justice, and security. But unpacking scores on each dimension reveals that some countries perform significantly better or worse on certain aspects. So for example, Vietnam ranks 78th overall. But if we break performance down by dimension, it ranks relatively well on security coming in at 24th but falls to 154th when just looking at justice. Another example is Mauritania, ranking 151 overall. Um, the country ranks 169th, so quite poorly on uh, inclusion, but jumps up to uh, 75th on security. Similar stories are shown for the countries on this graph, uh, which represent those with the most variation at the dimension level. So these cases are very important for two reasons. <clears throat> Firstly, they underline the importance of multidimensionally measuring women's status. Uh, for example, only looking at issues of inclusion or only looking at issues of security alone 
is not enough to reveal the full picture. And secondly, these findings help policymakers and activists identify exactly where it is that countries are falling behind and exactly where investment and attention are needed. Another really important finding from our results this year is that uh, performance on the WPS index is strongly correlated with a broad latitude of other important outcomes. So the graphs here show that countries where women are doing well are more prosperous, are better prepared to respond to the impacts of climate change, are more resilient against conflict and crises, or are more peaceful, and are also more democratic. And strikingly, women's status is more strongly correlated with these outcomes than GDP is, underlining again the importance of prioritizing investments in women. <clears throat> so as I briefly mentioned earlier, we made some structural adjustments to the index this year, meaning that our scores in 2023 are not directly comparable with those from previous years. So this year, we have also recalculated estimates from 2017, 2019, and 2021 that take into account the structural changes we, make this, we made this year uh, so that we're able to examine trends and patterns in women's status over time. So our analysis revealed that women's status is improving worldwide, but at a modest rate. So since 2017, the average WPS index score has improved, but by just 3%. Um, regionally, uh, East Asia and the Pacific, uh, as well as the Middle East and North Africa have seen the greatest improvement with an average score increase of around 7%. Um, and interestingly, Latin America and the Caribbean was the only region that demonstrated significant deterioration uh, with its score receding around 10%. Um, at the indicator level, We've seen the most improvement worldwide um, in women's legal rights, as well as financial inclusion. Um, and we've seen the largest declines in women's employment, um, as well as uh, uh, increases in proximity to conflict. Um, at the country level, uh, 20 countries saw improvements in their score of at least 10% since 2017. So the figure here displays the 10% largest improvements uh, in terms of score. Um, half of the 10 countries here are from uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, uh, and four of which are from the Middle East and North Africa. Um, Bahrain, Vietnam, and Egypt represent the three countries with the most improvement globally since 2017, uh, displaying score increases of over 20%. Looking at deterioration at the country level, uh, 13 countries around the world saw a decline of at least 10% since uh, 2017, Half of which are from Sub-Saharan Africa. Oh, sorry, half of which are from Latin America and the Caribbean. Um, in this region, uh, downward trends are mostly concentrated in the security dimension. Um, so, for example, regionally, the share of women living in close proximity to conflict has more than doubled over this period, from 19% in 2017 to 44% as of our most recent data from 2022. Um, and levels of political violence targeting women are higher than in any other region. So the countries here represent the 10 with the largest drops uh, since 2017. Um, Eswatini, El Salvador, and Burkina Faso are the three with the greatest uh, percentage decline in score. A final highlight from our report comes from our subnational analysis. So the WPS index overall relies on national averages to calculate scores and rankings, um, which often overlook variation in women's status within national borders. 
So this year, we were able to conduct subnational analysis for Colombia and Ethiopia, where we calculated WPS index scores at the provincial level within the country to show how women's status varies by geography and location. So in Colombia, we indeed found a vast range of scores across the country's 33 provinces and found that areas most affected by conflict and those with higher indigenous and Afro-Colombian uh, populations overall tended to score lower. So this emphasizes again that multiple factors and identities shape women's experiences and status that oftentimes are lost or not accounted for uh, when we look at national averages. Um, so in our report, uh, you'll find more analysis of Colombia as well as um, our other subnational country, um, Ethiopia. So overall, um, advancing women's status and the WPS agenda begin with tools that track progress and identify exactly where gaps persist, which is exactly what the WPS index is designed to do. Um, so, so far, we've seen the index used across multiple different capacities and by multiple different actors. So, for example, academics can use the uh, index um, for research purposes, looking at trends over time within countries by indicator. Uh, policymakers uh, can use the index to identify exactly where resources are needed. Journalists use the index to add context uh, to the stories that they're publishing. And activists use the index to hold governments and leadership accountable uh, to their promises on advancing the status of women. So we hope that the WPS index continues uh, to serve a broad range of actors uh, striving to, to advance global peace and security. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Elena, for that um, introduction. Um, and there will be plenty of time for you to ask Elena and uh, the panel questions about this index. But before we invite uh, the panel to the podium, I would like to give the floor to Siri Osrusta. Uh, she is a research director and uh, leader of the index project here at PRIO. And uh, she has for many years been leading uh, a big project called Conflict Trends where, as the name indicates, she's been following, you know, how conflicts have evolved over time. Uh, so she has been particularly well-placed then to contribute with conflict data to this larger index project. And I think maybe I would also like to take this opportunity to acknowledge that Syria has had a lot of help from uh, Anna-Marie Obermeyer. She sits over there. Maybe you can stand up. <laughs> uh, so we have had a very good team here at PRIO working on the index. So Syria, please, the floor is yours. Thank you, Turin. Um, so I'm going to dive a little bit more into the conflict data. So while this is just one indicator of the 13 uh, which makes up the index, uh, it's an indicator that is, of course, particularly important to PRIO, uh, but it's also one that does shape the index quite a lot. Uh, and it also affects a lot of the other indicators that are included in the index. So I'll start to say a little bit about what, how the conflict picture actually looks so that we know what we're talking about when we talk about women in proximity to conflict. Uh, and these two graphs, and I realize now that they're a little bit small, um, but uh, bear with me. Uh, the top one indicates a number of people killed in conflict. And here we're talking just about direct deaths. So we're not including indirect deaths such as starvation or um, uh, 
infrastructure or immigration death. These are just people killed in the actual uh, conflict events. And then the bottom are number of conflicts. Uh, we look at three types of conflicts. One is state-based. Uh, in these graphs, this is the blue color. These are conflicts that include a state. So either uh, two states fighting, such as Ukraine, Russia, or a civil war. Um, the red uh, are non-state conflicts. These are conflicts where you don't, where the state is not involved as a warring actor, but are two uh, conflict um, or non-state groups. Uh, for example, in Syria, we see uh, IS fighting a lot of other non-state groups. So we have a lot of non-state conflicts. And then uh, finally, the turquoise, uh, green-ish, I'm sorry, I'm color challenged, so I <laughs> struggle with that. Um, that's one-sided violence. This is violence uh, conducted either by the state or a non-state group towards civilians. So when we talk about conflict in, in the index, we include all of these types of conflicts because we do think that it doesn't matter whether you live close to a state-based conflict event or a non-state conflict event. It's violence and it's conflict. So we count them all equal. So just to say something about the trends. <clears throat> so on the top, you see there are two spikes. The one in 1994 uh, is the Rwandan genocide. And that's, uh, as you see, or maybe not, it's, uh, the graph is broken because there were so many people killed in that incidence or in that uh, genocide that it would just dwarf the rest of the trends. Uh, and then we see in the around the 2000 until up until 2010, it's, it's quite a, a calm period actually. It's not that many people killed or relatively few people killed in conflict before we see an increase around 2011. Um, there are several reasons why we see this increase. Uh, one is of course the conflict in Syria, where we see the, the spike in 2013. Uh, but it, it was quite extensive. It was like a four-year, five-year period with a, a lot of people killed in Syria. But also, if you look at that bottom graph, around 2011, there was a huge increase in what we call non-state conflicts. Um, so there is both an increase in people killed and, peop and number of conflicts. Then after the Syrian conflict um, settled down a little bit, we see a decrease in the uh, number of people killed, but this number of conflicts stays stable, uh, increasing a little bit. Then for the past two years, we have seen a dramatic increase in people killed in conflict. Uh, 2021, um, this is mainly due to uh, troops leaving Afghanistan um, and Taliban taking over. And then, of course, 2022 was the worst year of conflict since the Rwandan genocide and even early 1980s, if we only look at state-based conflicts, with the war in Ukraine, of course, but also a civil war in Ethiopia, which actually killed more than 100,000. So these are the sort of the background data that we use when we calculate uh, women's proximity to conflict. So to calculate proximity to conflict, we need to know where the conflicts are. Uh, we use data from the UCDP, the Uppsala Conflict Data Program, and they code data telling us exactly where the conflict happened. So we get sort of the longitude latitude of a conflict event. And that's how these data look. 
So the, the world map underneath here shows uh, red colors. Uh, the darker, the more people killed within the country. Um, so you can see, for example, you can see Brazil has uh, quite high. Brazil is not a typical conflict country, but there's a lot of gang violence and drug cartels in Brazil, similarly to Mexico. Um, also, we see Sudan, DRC, uh, and then, of course, if it hadn't been for all the blue dots, Syria, Afghanistan would also be dark red. Uh, then these blue dots, these are the events. This is exactly where the conflict happens. And the darker blue, the more people killed in a specific event. And the interesting takeaway with this is that we see that countries are not uh, affected equally within the country by conflict. For example, Russia. The conflict is in the Caucasus, mainly. Uh, thus, people living in Siberia is not affected by conflict in the same sense as people living in the Caucasus. India, for example, uh, the conflict is mainly in the eastern parts. Uh, there are some countries that are covered entirely, that typically Syria, um, Afghanistan, but also uh, countries like the Philippines. But in the Philippines, while there are conflicts most, uh, covering most of the country, these are low-intensity events. So you can see the Philippines are mainly white dots. And finally, there are also areas where, in, like in Yemen, where probably only like one quarter of the geographic area of the country is covered. But this is where 90% of the population lives. So that's why we look at the proximity to conflict and not just the level of conflict on the country. Okay, so to get a little bit back to why we look at women specifically related to conflict. How are women dispro uh, disproportionately compared to men affected by conflict? Uh, so there's been, there, we have colleagues here at Prio who's done quite a lot of research on this, finding, for example, that uh, women living in conflict areas are less likely to give birth at health facilities, of course, endangering the, the, um, the child and the mother. Uh, there's an increase of maternal death, probably due to the fact that you're not able to go to health facilities. Uh, it amplifies the risk of gender-based violence, including also unwanted pregnancies among teenagers. Uh, it leads to this uh, disproportionate level of high school or school dropouts for girls. Girls are more likely to drop out if they live close to conflict. And also it creates barriers to women's livelihood opportunities. It becomes more difficult for women to uh, create their own livelihoods. Just looking at this proximity to conflict is quite relevant. Okay, so I'm going to try to explain a little bit how we do this specifically. This is an example from Sudan. And as Elena mentioned, we look at two years uh, consecutive. So if, if a woman has lived close to 50 kilometers within the last two years. Uh, we use 50 kilometers, uh, not because we have a very good scientific reason for it, but it is a distance that is possible to walk within a day. But of course, it, it could differ in what kind of uh, in um, what is relevant for you. If you're giving birth, you might be willing to travel much more than 50 kilometers to get to a health facility. But these are quite rare events, so you could do that if you plan well. However, going to school, go, going more than 50 kilometers is quite 
difficult because it's something that you do every day. Uh, so we have to simplify. So we have chosen one buffer size to sort of cover all. Um, in this map, we see uh, events in Sudan that happened in 2021 and 2022. Red ones are only 2021. Pink-ish uh, are uh, both years. So these are areas that covered both 2021 and 2022. And then the blue is only 2022. So then we combine all of these scores. So in Sudan, there were approximately 9 million women living in conflict in uh, 21 and 22, which uh, is about 37%. So we do this for all countries, uh, and then we summarize it. Okay, so what does the, the data tell us? So this graph is trying to encompass everything that with conflict and the index. Uh, on the uh, y-axis, we see the index. So the higher up a country or the bubble, the country bubble is on this graph, the higher is the index score. Then on the, on the bottom, on the x-axis, is the share of women living in conflict in that specific country. And then the size of the bubble indicates people killed. How many people were killed in conflict in that country? So a couple of things to, to notice. There are two big bubble, bubbles on this graph. And these are Ukraine and Ethiopia, because they were the two big conflicts in 2022. But what is noticeable is that they are not particularly low, at least not Ukraine, is quite high up on the index. And Ethiopia is not, it's not high, but it's not uh, as low as uh, several other countries. Does the uh, conflict does in uh, variable doesn't entirely explain sort of the index. It's not a even though we see the line here, there is a clear re relationship between scoring low and having high share of women living in conflict. It's not. But when we look at the countries that are actually working at the bottom, so Yemen, Afghanistan, Central African Republic, South Sudan, Syria, the bubbles are small in this graph, but we know previously they've had large conflicts, and this indicates that living in conflict for a long period also affects the other uh, indicators. So education for girls is not going to be great in Afghanistan when the conflict ends, or health facilities in Yemen is not going to be rebuilt just because the conflict ends, it's not going to be rebuilt next year. Okay, and then uh, finally, looking at time trends. And here we just look, here we're not doing this counting two years. This is just for each year. It's a little bit busy, but I'll try to indicate it. So this top full line indicates how many women lived in proximity to conflict uh, each year from 1990 to 2022. And the steeple line indicates the share of the total population of women. Uh, so first of all, we see that the share also increases. Increases from 10% to 15%. So these upward trends that we see, it's not only uh, due to an increase of population. There, is, there has been an actual increase of women living in conflict. So in uh, 1990, it was less than 300 million women living in conflict, while in 2022, it's almost uh, 600 million, so a doubling. Also, we see that 
in the past ten, eight to ten years, there has been a, a quite steep increase. So from this point, which is 2013 and up until 2022, there's been a doubling of women living in conflict. So from 400 million to 600 million. Uh, as we see, there is a there are the conflict picture of the world is becoming more worrisome. Then these three lines at the bottom here, they take intensity level into account. So the gray one counts women who live close to 50 meters within battle at least 10 people were killed. The uh, light blue one are 25 people killed and the dark blue one are 100. So what we see is that most women actually live uh, close to events where there are between one to nine people killed in a year, which is not a lot. But still, the alternative is to live in peace. So even though it's a very low intensity conflict, it is a conflict. Uh, on the other hand, more than 300 million women live close to more than 10 uh, in areas where more than 10 people are killed. And as almost as much as 100 million women live close to where uh, 100 people are killed within a year. That's two people or two people every week almost. Thank you. That was uh, what I had for conflict trends. Thank you so much, uh, Siri. Then I would like to invite both Elena and Siri and Signe Gielen from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to the panel. Join me here. Um, as you can see, we have a new uh, speaker or a guest here uh, on the panel. That's Signe Gielen, who is the Special Envoy on Women, Peace and Security at the Ministry of, um, of Foreign Affairs. Um, and I have invited her uh, to this event because I wanted to um, hear a little bit from you. What, what's your thinking around the usefulness of an index like this? Because for both PRIO and from the, for the Georgetown Institute, it's important for us to produce knowledge that hopefully can be of use uh, in terms of both understanding why conflict breaks out, uh, how can we contribute to resolving or preventing conflict, how can we contribute to improving the living conditions for for human beings? And in this case, of course, for women. Uh, and you've been funding this, uh, and you, then I mean the Minister of Foreign Affairs, uh, since the very beginning in, in 2017. And and how, how do you find the usefulness of an index like this? I know that you're in, in concerned about developing policies that are based in, in knowledge. So thank you for inviting me. Um, uh, we have been working with this index for some time, and uh, I, I really appreciate also this uh, report to sp uh, look at the trends over time, uh, because that's also pile up the whole knowledge base somehow. Um, our policy should be based on on, on knowledge, so uh, so that's basically the main uh, main motivation for for providing funds to such studies. Um, it's also linking up an uh, uh, important uh, research uh, uh, um, environment and, and institute in Oslo uh, uh, with Georgetown, which I think is, is a value in itself, and this cross-border collaboration. Um, it also 
uh, utilize data that are already there and uh, and and which is very important because we know that we are collecting a lot of data through UN and other uh, World Bank as you mentioned and 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 it's uh, under analyzed uh, <coughs> we do have a lot of data but it's really not utilized uh, in the full strength um, so so um, so that's that's part of it then also I think uh, it has quite a big impact um, uh, it, it motivates colleagues it put uh, the, 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 the issues on the agenda so when we had the launch I think in in, um, in New York in October uh, you saw that we were launching this index together with South Africa and uh, and the Emirates, uh, also underlining that this is something that is uh, a, you know have a have a great great buying from uh, different continents, um, and it's something that we agree on. It's a platform of knowledge that we can say that yeah, this is uh, this is actually some some trends and, and facts that we can all relate to. Um, and we are all in different um, in in different positions when it comes to the index, but we all but, um, we we all support uh, the finding of the index. Um, uh, I think also if you looked at the audience at the at the at the, the launch, um, you had uh, several uh, important UN agencies. You had the DPPA there, the DPO. Um, you had Patton, uh, the SRSG for conflict related sexual violence. Of course, UN Women were there. A lot of colleagues from different uh, fr uh, different um, uh, permanent representatives. So, so it, and uh, I followed the I followed also the, the the open debate on women, peace, and security on the twenty fifth, um, and a lot actually referred to the index um, in in that uh, in that uh, meeting, and it was based on the on the launch of the index uh, uh, just a day before. Um, um, and and for us, it's uh, it's it's important to to put uh, relevant data. Uh, I, I also have to say that I'm very impressed by the way you have piled up this uh, uh, analysis and and point to very concrete trends. Um, what worries me is uh, is of of course those in the 20 countries, which is uh, in the bottom of the of the. Of the of the index and uh, which also have prolonged conflicts and where, you know, um, uh, for instance, um, uh, democratic processes is is hampered because they are in a prolonged conflict. Take Yemen as an example; they were in a national dialogue. Um, it was a very inclusive dialogue uh, 10, 12 years ago, and then they have been in a very long and and protected conflict, and and uh, and uh, and it's no indication that they will move quickly on this uh, uh, on, on this uh, index unless um, they find some kind of common ground uh, and move forward um, um, and, and uh, settle the conflict. Um, so um, in that sense, you can say that, well, it points to the fact, but what do we do about it? <laughs> uh, I would also say that uh, uh, what also struck out a little bit to me is that uh, you can have a good uh, economy in a country but not necessary safety. Um, uh, so the inclusion and the, and the democratic processes in a country is really very important, and the, and the judiciary. Um, so, um, and you have, uh, of course, crime, uh, crimes. Um, um, so, so all these are, I think, very interesting um, uh, dimension of the index. Um, basically, because we are main, we are 
we are responding to conflicts, but we are not uh, in a position where we can pr pr prevent conflicts as much as we respond to them, right? And when, and when you add on the 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 uh, uh, the, uh, the climate change and the effects on climate change when it comes to conflicts, uh, I think that is something we also will see in the future, which is is also a very interesting area of of looking uh, uh, looking closer to, because we need to see how do we actually prevent uh, profilation of of conflicts uh, in a situation where you have. Have uh, a lot of conflicts related to to scarce resources, so 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 that's <laughs> that's how I, I I look at it. I I just also want to say that so it's about the knowledge base, it's about the impact it has the the index, and then I would also say that um, and I I mention this quite often. I think that the, that uh, knowledge hubs and and universities in the south, if you call it the south. Um, uh, is is um, is unfortunately too little involved. Um, uh, they don't have the same resources. They don't have the same PhD programs, and and we need that kind of knowledge, which is uh, closer to to the hotspots <laughs> of conflicts uh, and 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 uh, and societies at risk. And um, I don't know it really if the if the research. Uh, um, community set up in a way that you know when it comes to financing, um, uh, uh, what kind of of, uh, of, uh, of research is is given credit? Uh, where how do you enter into good journals? Uh, uh, you know, um, all these things that matters, of course, for researchers. Um, but uh, when we look at, for instance, climate change, uh, and um, I use this sometimes an ex as an example because India was. Um, in around 2012, they came into the climate change uh, research and, uh, and we got data from the third pole and it actually changed the whole model of climate change. So, so somehow I should wish that we had a system where we could actually uh, have a little bit more global uh, collaboration uh, and, and, and uh, strengthen uh, research communities, like in countries like South Sudan um, and, and others. Thank you so much. Um, you mentioned climate. Uh, Elena, I know it's not the topic of, of, of this breakfast seminar, but I know that you have recently, you have some colleagues who've been looking into the nexus of, of gender, climate and security. Maybe you can say just a few words about the, that work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, I mentioned this briefly in uh, my presentation of the results today, but we found that you know, countries where women are doing well tend to be those that are best prepared to respond to the impacts of climate change. So we recently took this analysis a step further and published a separate shorter brief um, looking at uh, the WPS index in relation to the triple nexus of gender, climate, and security. And we compared the WPS index against three different indices of climate resilience. So one is um, Notre Dame University's uh, index of climate preparedness um, and vulnerability levels. One is uh, the environmental performance index, which looks more at ecosystem health and environmental health. Um, and the third is the state resilience index, which looks more at institutional capacity. And we found that the WPS index is strongly correlated with all three of these different measures of climate resilience. Um, so the purpose of the brief is to walk through and make some hypotheses around why is it that where women are doing well, countries are better prepared to respond to climate change. Um, and some of the mechanisms we, we walk through relate to strongly to women's inclusion, justice, and security. So 
for example, you know, there's a broad latitude of research that shows that women are disproportionately impacted by climate change or they experience the negative impacts first. They're on the front lines. Um, so uh, we know that because of these unique experiences, women offer diverse and important perspectives into the policymaking process. Um, but women don't have access to these decision-making roles if first they don't have access to inclusion, justice, and security um, more broadly. Um, so I think you know this is just scr uh, scratching the surface um, of a lot more research and work that needs to be done into this. Uh, but the initial contribution that we make in this work is that you know we see here empirically through data that this relationship exists. Um, and in order uh, for policymaking to avoid reproducing inequalities, uh, it's really important um, to take uh, women's issues into account. I think that the pattern you, you see there in, in the climate uh, sphere is very similar to what we see in, for instance, uh, peace mediation. Mm -hmm. it, it's the same challenges there. Um, I was thinking that maybe we could address, uh, because we have received some critical questions about the index from, from journalists and others. So. Uh, how serious can we take an index like this when we see very strange outliers, you know, countries that are ranking relatively high on this index, uh, and still we know that they are doing very poorly uh, in terms of women's rights. Um, so I was wondering whether you could address that, uh, maybe give some examples and explain why, why we have these sort of odd uh, rankings. I don't know who would like to start, Siri or Elena or... Maybe you start yeah, I'm happy to start, Siri. Um, so, you know, so firstly, I want to emphasize that the WPS index offers a very high-level snapshot um, of women's status in countries that is valuable as a tool for tracking patterns broadly over time, as well as comparison um, across countries directly. Um, so inevitably, when we take a high-level measurement, comparison-focused approach like we do with this index, uh, there are inevitably aspects that aren't fully captured, um, especially at a nuanced level. So, for example, one of the indicators that we have on the index is women's employment. And this is a simple measure of the share of women, of working age women that participate in the labor force. But this indicator isn't able to tell us anything about the quality of women's work or levels of discrimination or experiences of discrimination that they might experience in the workforce. Um, similarly, you know, I, I alluded to this in my presentation too, um, we rely completely on national averages um, and we know that women are not a homogenous group and that their experience and status is shaped by a variety of different identities, um, you know, race, ethnicity, religion, socioeconomic status, ability, migration status, and many, many more um, that also are, are difficult to capture um, in a high level tool like the WPS index. Uh, so, you know, tracking and um, implementing uh, policies uh, to advance women's status require multiple different tools. Um, the WPS index is one, um, but certainly, uh, you know, it's never intended to over, overshadow uh, the importance of more context-specific tools as well. Another uh, outcome of this uh, is that there are outliers on the WPS index or countries that rank um, differently from what we might expect. Um, so, for example, um, the UAE ranks very highly on the index um, at 22, um, above countries like France and Japan. Um, and we know from you know, other research, work, and uh, experiences that women have shared that women in the country face uh, regular challenges. Uh, for example, you know, high levels of domestic and intimate partner violence, uh, rigid patriarchal structures of norms, 
um, but the country's performance on the index is boosted by high levels uh, of uh, performance in the inclusion dimension. So for example, very high levels of education, um, high levels of technological access, bank account access, um, as well as 50% of women represented in the national parliament. Um, so again, uh, you know, the index offers a snapshot, um, and we really dedicate our report to unpacking these results and talking through the story behind the numbers, going into depth on cases like the UAE and others to explain what's going on behind the numbers, what's driving performance, um, you know, and, and re recognizing, too, that countries that score well on the WPS index always have room for improvement. No country is perfect, um, and even those at the very top um, have areas uh, that are lagging behind. Siri, maybe you would like to add something? Sure. So when it comes to the, the conflict indicator, um, mm -hmm. this is one of the indicators that was changed from the previous uh, iteration where we focused more on intensity, so number of people killed in a country, to the proximity. Uh, and, and of course, you lose something and you gain something by doing a change like that. Uh, so for example, in, in small countries that experience uh, low-level conflict, suddenly a big share of the population will be affected by conflict because the country is so small and a buffer zone of 50 kilometers will cover a large share of the country. Uh, we could, of course, adjust this for intensity and, and do more uh, maybe sophisticated methods. But on the other hand, it is something about keeping things simple to make it more comparison. Um, so so we, we will get some maybe strange results occasionally. Uh, but I do think that the benefit of, of getting some outliers that we question, there are, I mean, there are two. One with the U, uh, UAE is that people notice it and think about it, it gets focused and talk about, people talk about it. Maybe no one would have mentioned it if it was in, in place 100. And the second is that we might get surprised that maybe countries are doing better than we thought, that there has been an improvement over the past few years. So I think, in general, the index is very sound in sort of the trends. But then when we get the outliers, we should explore them. And then we'll gain more knowledge. Uh, there was one thing that I, um, I um, took notice of when you presented the more long-term trends, uh, Elena, that uh, there's been only an average, on the average score, there's only been a 3% increase uh, since 2017 in improvement on women, peace and security. Um, and I think that's quite disappointing that we, that we don't see more improvement uh, when we think of all the efforts that have been put into now the women, peace and security agenda, the SDGs and, and whatnot. Um, what's your thinking there, Signa, representing a, a government who is a major donor, uh, uh, not only... A, uh, in terms of um, the women, peace and security agenda, but also investing in the SDGs. Um, um, maybe it's a little bit unfair to put you on the spot, but uh, no, no, ha have you a, made some reflections on this? It's <laughs> a very good question. No, I think if you looked at the, at the conflict-related deaths, I think just that the whole picture have changed dramatically when it comes to security pol policy and geopolitical realities. Uh, and, uh, of course, women, peace and security is affected by, by those changes. Um, so um, I, I, 
you know, we are also co-chairing the Women, Peace and Humanitarian Action Compact, which is a broad compact of more than 200 signatories, uh, member states, NGOs and UN organizations from private sector, together with the, with the Global Alliance of Women Peace Builders, and where the UN is in uh, the secretariat function. Um, and, and you see that community of, and, and also the follow-up of the, of the uh, Security Resolution 1325 with so many national action plans, where actually countries have defined their goals and what they want to do. And they are also reporting to the platform on their, on their achievements, on their priorities. So I think there is quite a broad commitment of peace and security, but the challenges today is very worrisome. And, uh, and that's also, I think, uh, somehow that these kind of studies is important because it's, it's, it, it, it provides us with some, uh, 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 some, uh, some yeah, the index provides us with knowledge on, on the trends and, and uh, we should do more to, to work on prevention. Um, yeah, and that's why I'm, I'm also addressing the issue of climate change, which we know is there. So, so we just have to be prepared for those things. And, uh, and, uh, and um, yeah, so I put women, peace and security in a much broader security policy picture that we need to assess and understand more broadly. Well, as I said in, in my introduction, <coughs> the, the purpose of um, the Oslo Peace Days is to engage the public in, in discussion and exchanges. So I think uh, I would like to open up. We have set aside plenty of time for, uh, for questions and answers. So uh, I would just encourage you all to ask questions or come with reflections. Uh, and please, when you ask for the floor, uh, it would be great if you could say your name and where you come from. Anyone who would like to start out? No? Yeah, there we have. Uh, uh, you need to wait for a microphone, please. Uh, thank you. Uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, Nita Luzzi, Ambassador of Kosovo. So when the index initially came out, it produced some debate in Kosovo because obviously when reports like this come out, Everybody wants to see where they are, and then the comparison follows. And one of the comments was, so Kosovo, in comparison to Ukraine, which has been in this war for so long, is doing poorly. And so this raised alarms to say, why is it that we haven't se don't seem to be progressing, although we've done this, we have plans, we have action plans, and we have all the figures that show improvement. And I think it perhaps goes to something that, Signe, you mentioned, mm. and that the other panelists as well, that has to do with nuance and that it has to do with where the knowledge is coming from. So, for example, if you, I'm, I'm, can I just very, so if you look at um, the data on education, you would need a historical perspective to understand mm. it because actually Kosovo has more women in higher education than men but because of the generational differences that are historical, it uh, comes out mm. right as lower. And then at the same time, there's some data that is missing. Um, and then at the same time, some of the comments had to do with how do you bring together the different methodologies of the different reports and the different systems by which nations gather data and then treat them I'm not going to say equally, but how do you treat the data the, itself? What is the methodology? 
And then it tells us that the method actually is the theory. Because once you have that method, you've taken a particular epistemology to, to define and to explain a context where you've lost the nuance and where some of the voices and some of the knowledge that is, let's call it, produced in particular geographic, social, political spaces isn't coming to the forefront, isn't being in a way represented. So perhaps it has to do a little bit with the idea of representation, that our idea of accounting for equality based on inclusion as equal to representation doesn't work because this is the way in which patriarchy works, basically. So I think I have more like comments, but I think there's some questions in there, if you will. Yes, thank you. Do you feel like responding immediately or should we collect more questions? Maybe you can... Yeah, yeah. I can respond to this. Um, firstly, thank you so much um, yeah. for joining today and for raising these you know, very important points that are things we, we're also thinking about when we're designing an index like this. So I'm happy to speak a little bit to some of the methodological aspects that you alluded to. Um, so data for all of the indicators on the index come from pre-existing data sources that have already been harmonized. So we... Uh, you know, when, when calculating the index, don't go through that ourselves. So, for example, they come from, you know, UN Women data sets, World Bank data sets. Um, each of those have their own methodologies, um, but go through rigorous processes of harmonization to make the values as comparable as possible. Um, so, you know, we recognize that no data set in the world is perfect, um, but for the index, we do our best to really pull from the best that are available, um, especially those that offer the best snapshot of comparison across countries. Um, that being said, as you alluded to, and as I pointed to in my presentation as well, um, you know, there are inevitably gaps and holes that we can't fill in a, pro in, a, in a project like this. So, you know, for example, you mentioned the case of Kosovo and the, indica uh, the indicator of education, which is mean years of schooling, which is... Um, you know, an average uh, number, uh, the average number of years that women 25 plus have gone to school for. So this is something we call a stock variable, which means because it's an average for women 25 plus, it doesn't change year to year. So, you know, countries with histories like Kosovo, um, sometimes, you know, those nuances aren't necessarily immediately apparent in our indicator. And another important point that you alluded to is, is the time, you know, the time lag. You um, brought up the comparison of Kosovo and Ukraine. Um, Ukraine, uh, you know, obviously has been entrenched in war um, for the past year plus. Um, and some of the indicators on our index take that fully into account, and some of them don't. So sometimes it takes a couple editions of the index um, before current events are fully captured by the data set. Inevitably, the pace of world events evolves much more rapidly than the pace of data collection. So there's always a period of catch-up and lag there, too. That is inevitable when designing tools like this. Um, and the last point that I'll make is, again, you know, the index offers the very high-level snapshot, and we really, really dedicate our report to diving in at the country level as much as possible into the nuances, which we know vary by country, by context, by indicator. I'm really trying to tell the story behind the numbers. So we do this for Kosovo. We do this for as many countries as we can in the report. Um, yeah, so I'll pause there. I don't know if others have anything to add. Would you like to add something? I, I agree with Elena. This is something about if you're going to make something comparable across countries and uh, in the world uh, you kind of need to to use the numbers and the numbers who are there 
but then unpacking it. And mm -hmm. the fact that it actually stirs a debate in Kosovo, that is, is, is good because then you can dive into it and mm. see, well, this is because ABC. But then, on, then when doing that, maybe you also find things that you can improve. So I think it's th the index is all about putting the spotlight on an issue uh, and, and not a competition in, a, in that mm. sense. I know uh, at previous uh, events that we have had a lot of ambassadors in the audience and there might have been <laughs> a little bit of competition. <laughs> um, I think I saw one hand. Was it Ingeborg? Yeah. It's Ingeborg Breiners, previous life as director in UNESCO, including as women coordinator and coordinating the program on women and the cultural peace, now working with the International Peace Bureau. Thank you for taking us <coughs> through the... Um, through the index, it's very useful. I wanted to bring up the issue of education. And uh, I'm doing that because when in UNESCO, we often compared women's and girls' illiteracy, the maps with the map of uh, poverty. And I think that, uh, or I assume, that that map would also indicate conflict. So illiteracy, poverty, conflict. When you have data like this, uh, I think it is important to be solution-oriented, and I'm happy that uh, the Minister of Foreign Affairs underlined <coughs> the importance of utilizing the data in order to improve the situation. But after the... Um, COVID, it's obvious that the girls' and women's education and education broadly seen is going down. So highlighting education might be a way of improving or indicating to policymakers where to put emphasis because there are so many research um, results that indicate the importance of girls' and women's education in order to make a more peaceful and better life for themselves and their society. And if you compare <coughs> the resources we use for military defense, 2.2 billion US dollars a year, with how much we use for education. So if you take seven, between seven and eight days of the military budget, you can give 12 years quality free education to all women and men in the world. So um, to me, it is important to make this link between um, research and um, action on the field. Thank you. Thank you for that, Ingeborg. Uh, anyone who would like to respond to that? Just say that, I mean, I completely agree with that. I mean, <coughs> lots of research shows that uh, education is key in, uh, in, have in developing peace. Uh, and also th the fact that you focus on the quality. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not only about uh, having a schoolhouse to go to and sit. It's also about the quality of the education that you receive while you're there. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a very, very good point. Anyone else who would like to? I mean, uh, education is, is uh, also amplifying uh, progress in health. Uh, you know, uh, when a girl is Going through education, the, her her children again will have a much better position when it comes to health. Uh, imp you know, so so all this is connected. I just see that, that if you look at the trends and the Millennium Goals and all the, the Sustainable Development Goals and and 
some kind of break in the in the in the midst of the between 20 13 14 and today so it, it's a backlash right uh, and and um, um, and i think there is a very different uh, mechanism in 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 motion right now than than actually a, a pure uh, what can i say development kind of um, um, agenda it's other interest that has uh, has uh, has uh, moved into the uh, to the to the global scene as I, I talked about the whole geopolitical situation the security policy situation and and then you hence you have other focus uh, while we had a very good trend on 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 on, on uh, working together on development for very many years yeah so so I think that that's uh, it is uh, it is um, it's a it's a different time somehow yeah it's a it's a general negative trend and then of course you have countries like afghanistan which is particularly worrying when it comes to education for girls and and women absolutely um uh, afghanistan is ranking at the very bottom and has been at the very bottom i think for in all of the index, uh, indices or at least among uh, the countries in the very bottom um elena you were talking about um the pace of conflicts being much faster than we are able to, you know, yeah. dig out data. Uh, the most recent index, uh, I guess, doesn't really cover... There are no recent data on Afghanistan, I guess. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, again, uh, the pace of, you know, evolving conflicts is much faster than the pace of data collection and, and publication. Um, so... For countries currently experiencing conflict, mostly those ranked among the bottom, including, you know, Afghanistan, Yemen, Democratic Republic of Congo, others, um, a handful of indicators uh, are much more recent, like collected and published within the last year. So, for example, our conflict proximity data, from what we know, is fairly up to date. Um, you know, uh, our legal discrimination indicator comes out every year, um, but others uh, are on a more or on a less frequent publication schedule. Um, so, uh, for example, intimate partner violence only comes out every four or five years. So not every iteration of the WPS index, which comes out every two years, every other year, um, can capture you know, immediate trends. Um, so again, we, our report really tries to bring together you know, the recent, most recent estimates that we have, but also work uh, and knowledge from uh, women on the ground. So in the report, for example, again, intimate partner violence, the most recent data come from, I think, 2019 or 2020. But in the report, when we're talking about that indicator, we cite a lot of more country-specific um, or regional-specific um, information and, and knowledge that uh, civil society organizations or others have published that is oftentimes more relevant to the current situation happening today um, that not all of our um, indicators can capture as well. I see that we have at least two more hands. You first. Uh, yes, my name is Kristen Alma. I'm a student of international law, gender, peace, and development. And I had a question about the indicator because when you broke it down, we saw across the different uh, indicators of inclusion, justice, and security that there are differences within countries. And I was wondering, do you, did you see any trends of the different indicators getting better or worse across different regions? Or is this kind of just varying with the country that they're in. Um, yeah, I can tackle this. Thank you so much um, for joining today and, and for that question. Um, 
you know, looking at trends, I can highlight a couple of big ones, but a lot of times, you know, it's important to really dive into a country-specific situation, and the story is so different for every individual country. Um, in my presentation, I highlighted the 10 countries with the most variation at the dimension level, but really almost all countries have variation to some extent, um, which again underlines one of the most important takeaways from the WPS index that every single country has areas of strength, areas where it's doing well, and areas where it's falling behind, and areas that rapidly need um, attention and improvement. Um, so globally, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned sort of trends over time, and globally we've seen the most improvement um, on women's legal rights, so the proliferation and passage of new legislation that safeguards women's rights um, on paper or, or officially under the law, um, as well as women's financial inclusion or access to a bank account, and that is largely connected to um, the proliferation of digital technologies and online banking platforms that increase women's autonomy um, and agency um, in managing their own financial assets independently. Um, so those are two, um, you know, big trends sort of at the indicator level. Um, and then, as I mentioned, uh, de decline-wise, um, we're seeing less women participating in the workforce. A lot of that is a relic of the COVID-19 pandemic that magnified economic inequalities for women and disproportionately pushed women out of the workforce. So we see a big decline there. Um, and also escalations in proximity to conflict, which is a reflection of, you know, proliferating conflicts worldwide. Um, but again, you know, I'd really encourage you to take a look um, more specifically in countries or regions um, for a much more nuanced picture on what's improving and deteriorating. Then there was... Yes, good morning. My name is Carolina Mayra Johansson. I work in the Focus Forum for Women and Development. Uh, I just have a question, not really thought... <laughs> yeah, I'm just thinking about it. So, so if I am uh, Poyura, mm -hmm. you just uh, forgive me. Uh, the, um, the the you talk about the uh, um, closeness to conflict, and uh, in former days, with with we, we talked about state and state. We talk about state with guerrillas. Now we talk about the closeness to conflict, and you see about Latin American features. Uh, it's not necessarily the political conflict giving most death. So uh, what do you want with this new, or not quite new, but this way of showing number of women close to a conflict in relation with what peace building is going to be? Mm. Because uh, are we saying that uh, uh, we should not only negotiate with political enemies, but also with, for example, narco gangs. And uh, have you gotten already um, 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 responses from others about whether this should change a way we see to this building? Um, I can respond a little bit. I think what you're pointing at is, is, is really important because when I show you the map with conflict, it is uh, quite obvious that there are countries there that people do not think about as conflict countries, like Mexico and Brazil is quite, I mean, since it's so big, it, it kind of lights up. Um, and the conflicts that we count in these 
countries are the, these non-state conflicts, which are, as you point out, a lot of drug cartels, a conflict between drug cartels, basically, and it, it has increased over the past, say, 10 years. Uh, and it is different. It is a very different beast from communal violence in Eastern Africa. Uh, unfortunately, don't have a lot of research on non-state conflicts, uh, which is sorely needed. Um, and I think your point uh, about we have to think about how, how do we deal with that in a sort of peace mediation sense. Is this are we, are we going to have peace mediations in between drug cartels, or is there a different way of dealing with it? But I think by including it in the index, we are highlighting the problem. But I still think in the I think in these countries, more people are killed in homicide than in the conflicts itself. Uh, I know from in, in 2013, I think more people were killed in homicide in Brazil than people were killed in this uh, in the Syrian conflict. So that that's a sort of in, uh, um, a variable that we're not taking into account. But I think by including these non-state conflicts, which then are a bit, bit broader, a little bit of gray zone between crime and conflict, we are putting a spotlight on it, and then hopefully spurring a discussion like you're doing now. I think it was a very good question. Uh, Signe, would you like to add something there? or No, no I, I just noticed that uh, I think Mexico themselves have raised this issue of, of um, you know, more uh, organized crime and uh, also when it comes to territorial um, 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 uh, issues because they are claiming they are almost, yeah, you know, they are in control of the territory. Uh, so, so, so the whole uh, the whole uh, mixture between non-state actors, uh, a criminal, uh, organized crime, and uh, and state conflicts, I think, is is something that is really very much debated this day and, and and brought to the forefront. Mm -hmm. And uh, Mexico is not the only uh, country, but they have actually pointed to these issues themselves. Mm. Yeah. Um, there was one hand over there, Henrik. Thank you, Henrik Urdal, uh, director here at PRIO. Thanks to Elena and Siri for a great presentation of uh, very important work. And I'm proud that PRIO is part of this. Um, I have two questions. Uh, the first is, um, so, so you made a point, Elena, that there has been a moderate improvement uh, over time. At the same time, we know that there has been more some increasing conflicts uh, and, and increasing exposure to conflicts. So to what extent is the underlying trend, if you like, more positive perhaps than what is being represented here because we're seeing increasing conflict. Of course, conflict is in, in many ways sort of repressing uh, also progress on, on, on these indicators, but to what extent are we actually seeing uh, you know, more positive development than perhaps what is coming out in, in, in the numbers? The second is, is uh, linking this to, uh, to this year's peace prize uh, to Iran uh, and, and very explicitly uh, the, the situation for women in Iran. Uh, are we seeing any uh, progress in Iran, or are we seeing uh, an opposite to the opposite uh, development? Thank you. Maybe I'm happy to address the first question, and maybe Syrian mm -hmm. Signa can tackle the second. Um, so first, you know, to the question of um, like global trends and uh, you know a very modest uh, amount of improvement. Um, so firstly, you know, we looked at the changes of the global average score from 2017 to 2023, but also between every other year in between those, like smaller increments of time, if you will. 
Um, and we see that uh, the biggest uh, increase in score across the period or looking at two-year increments was actually between 2017 and 2019. Um, and progress dramatically slowed after that, um, in part based on our analysis for two reasons. So one is the proliferation of conflict, which jeopardizes women in diverse ways, um, but also was the COVID pandemic. So progress significantly slowed um, in 2020, uh, after 2019, so in 2021 and 2023. And this is because, you know, of, of the disproportionate impacts of the global health crisis on women, um, particularly through uh, their economic participation, so labor force, um, and also through rising rates of domestic violence, intimate partner violence within the home. Um, so our analysis is that it's really kind of both of those factors together that have contributed to the deceleration of progress. So we're still seeing an improvement, but the rate of improvement year to year has slowed. Um, yeah, so I'll stop there, Siri. I don't know if you want to add or go to the next question. Uh, no, I thought if you look at the index when it comes to, 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 the, uh, to the improvement, for instance, in the Gulf, uh, I think that's a very clear indication that it also has to do with political will. <laughs> And uh, and the fact that some of the Gulf countries have adjusted or or abolished the the guardianship regulations, where uh, uh, like I was in in Saudi Arabia myself from 2019 to 2022, um, where women suddenly uh, uh, where they they removed the, the the guardianship in sense of you could have your own passport, your own bank account, you could uh, live in your own, uh, own house, and all this very new reforms uh, and, and new decisions and that's that came from a political will uh, so I, I don't want to underestimate uh, actually the the, the um, advocacy <laughs> for 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 women rights more broadly and 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 uh, and, uh, and recognize the, that this really uh, if you think about women politicians or representation it's it's a lot to do with political will both within parties and and in society in large so, yeah. yeah, and I think although we were talking about this not to be a competition, I think countries take notice of rankings like this. So there is an element of peer pressure, you might say, or, you know, every country wants to perform well, you know, on, on rankings like this. Um, did anyone want to respond on the Iran question? Um, you don't know the, by heart the <laughs> ranking of Iran? I don't. No? No? Sorry about that, Henrik. Yeah. <coughs> uh, my name's Paul Haynes. I'm from the UK. Sorry about my throat. Um, I, it's been often suggested that women are the best peacemakers. Um, is there any indication of this in, in suggested in in your index? Uh -huh. <laughs> I don't think the in. I don't think the index take that into account as such. Uh, I think it's a it's a very good point. Uh, and, the, on, and there is a lot of research going on focusing on women's inclusion in peace processes. Often women are not included in the main uh, or in the important peace process at the table. I'm working on a project of looking at women's inclusion in ceasefires. How can you sort of get women to be part of a ceasefire, not as in not being part of it, but in the process of negotiating it. And how can we include them more in the table? Uh, and when we've talked with uh, well, mainly, mainly policymakers now, is the problem is that there's a lot of women 
doing a lot of local negotiations. Women get a lot of credit for doing a very good job in, in small conflicts, local negotiations. But then taking these women and putting them at the table at the national level is very difficult. Both because it's hard, it's, it's, it's not accepted necessarily, but it's also a big difference from negotiating these local conflicts to a national conflict. So there needs to be more um, um, knowledge building sort of and, and helping these women to get to that stage. Uh, but I think your point is very well taken. <coughs> I, I, I just, uh, yeah, I, um, I think that actually uh, that what we know is that inclusive processes is, is providing more sustainable solutions because then the different perspectives are heard and taken account to when, when you build uh, the process and, and uh, an agreement. So I think inclusion is is is, uh, is the key word or concept, um, uh, and also I, I don't want to essentialize this uh, uh, to biology. Actually, in the sense of women are also positioned in war, uh, and and uh, and they should also be part of of the process because they they might also mobilize towards conflict. It's not just that they are more peace loving. Uh, but then again, very often women have different concerns related to conflicts and, and, and interests that might uh, might uh, might follow uh, more into a peace track, thinking about uh, the immediate uh, concerns about their children and, 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 and so on. But I think the inclusion, uh, the inclusion, uh, the concept of inclusion is, is important. Uh, my name is Diana Nasser and I come from Palestine. And I don't know if it's a question or something I want to add, uh, but first of all, thank you for the useful information that you added for all of us. So since we're talking about the best and worst places for women in the world, I think it's worth mentioning Gaza now because of the situation it's going through. And we all know that Gaza is described as hell on earth for all human beings living there, not only for women. And I'm sorry, I'm talking very emotionally because myself going through all of this because I am here representing all the Palestinian women and all the Palestinian people. And I think it worth mentioning the Palestinian women living now in Gaza because they are not asking for jobs. They are not asking for education. They are asking for their basic human rights, which is their lives, shelters, safety, and security. And lastly, internationally, we've been asking on social media that women in Gaza they don't have even the health paths that they need each month. So it's, we're going to a, to a health disaster living there. So I don't know what we need to do. What, how can we help these women living there right now? And I think it's very important to bring this subject now and talking. I'm not saying that we should change all the subjects that you talked about, but if we can give five minutes talking about the women's situation in Gaza. Thank you so much. I, I think we can definitely agree that uh, Gaza must be the worst place for women, and not only women, but for both men and women and boys and girls right now. Anything you would like to say to, to that aspect? I, I don't think know. this uh, general secretary called for Article 99, which uh, yeah, which sa says all about the seriousness of that situation. So uh, I think uh, very all eyes are on on the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict and and uh, and what happened on 7th of October, 
and everything. So so that's um, yeah, it's really uh, on the on the top agenda, as you know. Uh, um, I think also that uh, that some of the other conflicts that we see unfold is is also somehow affected by by that scene because like in Sudan where you also have a lot of atrocities happening at the same time uh, important to keep an eye on all these conflicts and we have of course been looking at Ukraine for the last year so but this is a, a situation in, in Gaza and the fact that the general secretary have uh, have have used the uh, article 99 I think it's uh, since they haven't been used since 1989 so that's uh, how serious. It didn't start on the 7th of October that Gaza has been living under blockade for 17 years and all the women necess necessities that they need to enter to Gaza is controlled by Israel. So if Israel did not allow what they need, they will not get it. So we need like a real solution to solve this, um, this problem that we're facing because we're facing now a genocide, like it's not a conflict, it's a genocide. We reached 17,000 people being killed there and we're still counting the numbers. It's not stopped. So we need like a real solution so women can live there freely and start asking for their basic human rights and then start to ask, to ask for the rights of employment, of jobs, of education and living like any other woman all around the world. Thank you. I just think, uh, and you know, I'm I'm very sorry about what's happening in Gaza. It's it's awful, and it becomes kind of irrelevant to talk about a conflict measure. But I mean, we all know that every woman living in Gaza is under extreme pressure, so it sort of becomes irrelevant to talk about the index like that. I mean, we don't need an index to know that the situation in Gaza is terrible. But it also shows very clearly how damaging conflict is. It is as you say, it's not about getting 12 years education right now. It's about the hospitals being bombed, about not being having access. So it is an extreme, extreme situation. Thank you so much. Um, we are rapidly coming to a close, I'm afraid, uh, but I don't think there has been any more hands. Um, the Oslo Peace Days, as I said, is a collaboration between uh, several institutions in, in Oslo, and one of them is um, the Oslo, uh, sorry, the Nobel Peace uh, Center. And we asked Cheshti Flugstad, the director of the Nobel Peace Center, if she maybe would like to say a few closing remarks at this event. So I'm happy to give you the floor. I don't know if you would like to come stay here or at the podium. So please, Cheshti. Thank you so much, uh, Turun. Um, what to say after the strong intervention on Gaza? It's, uh, I agree with you, Siri, that it's, uh, it feels kind of irrelevant uh, to talk about the index and uh, all of it. But um, still, let me start thanking you so much at PU and Georgetown Institute for Women and Peace and Security, especially Elena and Siri, for this important tool. There are far too few tools um, available that we can use to hold perpetrators to account. And I will come back to that in a while. Uh, this week is indeed very important here for us in Oslo with, um, as Torin has said uh, numerous times, the Oslo Peace Days. And um, much activity is going on on peace and this year especially a lot on uh, women's rights. As we just in two days will celebrate and honour the... Uh, brave and impressive women rights activist Nargis Momedi's work 
She's from Iran, as you know, and she herself will not be here. Tellingly, she is still in, or she is in prison for her fight for women's rights. Um, as you all know, when uh, Berit Reis Andersen, the chair of the uh, Nobel Committee, entered the scene on October 6th and, uh, and uh, said, San Sendegi Azadi, Women, Life, Freedom, she clearly stated that the Norwegian Nobel Committee had decided to give the Peace Prize to Nargis Mamadi for her work for women's rights and struggle for women uh, in Iran. So this prize is significant. It's actually the first time the Nobel Peace Prize has been given for a women's rights activist and for the cause of women's rights. Uh, it has been uh, uh, touching upon women's rights earlier, but this is quite the first prize solely on women's rights. And then adding, of course, other things that Nargis is fighting for. Um, so we are many uh, with a hope that this prize will increase the attention and support for women's rights going forward. Um, given the uh, current media landscape, I must say there are surprising findings in your WPS index. Um, and that's why such indexes are so important, because we tend to be absorbed by what we see every day from, uh, from the news. And of course, there's Gaza and Ukraine, and there's not so much space for anything else for many of us. So we tend to think that the world is quite simple. But in fact, there is, as, as we have learned, uh, so much more going on. And we know that, of course, but I mean, it's so good to have it kind of uh, broken down and... Uh, with, um, with, with indexes like this. And uh, Henrik, you were taking my point because uh, what I find quite telling with this report as giving the, uh, the correlation between conflict and uh, women's situation and the increase of uh, women uh, in conflicts having doubled since 2017, I think 3% increase in uh, improvement is quite significant actually because... Uh, uh, conflict has affected so many women. Mm. So putting the so we should perhaps also say that some of the um, attempts and act, actions that have been put in place have been working actually. Mm. So let's also look at that and not only look at what hasn't worked. Mm. And we also see pockets of uh, improvements that may be uh, also uh, surprising that we tend to think that we know how the situation is, and then the index is actually showing us surprising improvements that we did not recognize. So I think that is important as well to bring along. Um, but when conflict increases, women are more affected. So I think that you have very uh, rightly talked about preparedness, and that we need to be more prepared for conflicts and for climate change. It can. We we just discussed this before the um, uh, the um, uh, seminar started. How prepared was Israel, for instance, for uh, the attack on the seventh? I'm sorry to bring that up, but but they are traumatized as well, and they had did not perhaps have that preparedness in place, telling us that we all need to be prepared uh, for the events coming that can occur, and climate being, of course, very very important. Uh, this year's Nobel Peace Prize makes it clear that women's rights um, 
uh, a society's ability to include all is related to peace and stability. But in order for women's rights and inclusion to be more than just something we talk about, we need to measure it. And that is why I think it's so important that uh, you have this tool, like the Gender and Peace Security Index. So I want to thank you so much for putting that forward. And at the Nobel Center, we also want to be part of building a more peaceful world, of course. And evidence shows again and again that peace is so much linked to democratic, inclusive and right-based societies. And we can only raise the pressure uh, on decision-makers to safeguard these values and institution in our society because you do research to measure that every year. But there are too few such tools. Therefore, I want to talk to you about uh, and actions actually that can help us. Another tool that we hope that can be added to the toolbox soon. But to do that, please um, let me point to the two countries on the WPCS index this year, number 140 and number 177. Iran is number 140 and Afghanistan is 177 out of 177, as you pointed out. And uh, from these two countries, the end, uh, uh, gender apartheid campaign was formed by brave Iranian and Afghan women. Apartheid is known as the systematic and institutionalized oppression of a group first used on the context of South African racism. The end gender apartheid uh, campaign aims to expand the understanding of the term to also includes, include gender apartheid, not just racial apartheid. Further, it aims to codify gender apartheid in international law, specifically in draft article on the prevention and punishment of crimes against humanity that the UN is considering in 2024. And UN Women is also now standing behind this. So we think this may be an exciting opportunity to strengthen regulations and add a tool to a toolbox with far too few measures. So this change may be uh, giving women and others around the world a stronger opportunity to insist on inclusion, justice and security. My understanding is that so far, and tellingly interesting enough, only Mexico has submitted a written commitment on requesting that gender apartheid be added to the treaty. Um, but um, So it may be a good opportunity, and many of you may be in a position to consider this and uh, push for a possibility of this being taken forward. I will not use more time on talking about this. But just to conclude, uh, another Nobel Peace Prize laureate said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. So we agree with Martin Luther King Jr. and look forward to seeing how your important work on the WPS index and other tools like N Gender Apartheid can get us there. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much, Kerstin. And with those closing remarks, I would like to thank you all for joining us here today. And, of course, a special thanks to Elena Ortiz for coming all the way from Washington, D.C., and to Signe Gielen from the MFA, 
and to my colleague Siri Osrusta for all of your wonderful contributions here today. And please, on your way out, bring with you copies. We have copies of both the full report and the summary in the back of the room here. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you.